Welcome to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast, brought to you by DonorSearch, the show that takes you inside the lives of thought leaders, innovators, and changemakers in fundraising, philanthropy, and civil society. I'm your host, Jay Frost. Stacey Palmer has served as a top editor at the Chronicle Philanthropy since its founding in 1988, overseeing its growth and development from the print to the digital era. In this episode, we talk about the arc of her career, from early days as a lifestyle reporter to work today in shepherding her influential publication into an independent nonprofit, as well as her thoughts about the media's coverage of the nonprofit world and her hopes for the future of the sector. We begin with a surprising story that started it all at her college paper. Where are you from originally? I grew up in Connecticut. Oh, whereabouts? In Middletown, where Wesleyan University is, so a lot of people know it for that. Sure, sure, of course. Uh, is it a place you return to at all? Because I know you went no, to Brown. My family left the area um, and moved to Colorado, so it's not a place that we don't have a house there anymore or any of those things, but it definitely is the place I'm very fond of. That's quite a switch from Connecticut to Colorado. Yeah. Yeah, it was rather dramatic. Were you pretty young when you had that? No, move? no, I never actually lived. I never lived in Colorado. My mother moved there um, and she very much wanted to make sure that her children were raised in one place. Um, but then when it was time for her to move someplace else that was more exciting, Colorado was it. Um, mm. So so I, I ended up and I always felt really terrible about the fact that I don't ski. So here I had this great opportunity to, you know, go to Colorado on vacations and and see that. But um, Colorado has a lot of other wonderful things, but I, I don't take full advantage of all of it. It does. And there's not a lot of skiing in Connecticut. There's not some, really, no. but not really. <laughs> um, so you have siblings, though. You were just telling me. I have, me I have in a London. sister. I have a younger sister. Okay. So she was, I guess, made that journey probably or a little bit of it. And then um, she's off across the pond. And But you went to, to Brown after after I being did. raised there. I did. And so did she. Um, and she ended up having a career. She just retired as the COO of WGBH. So she led oh. a very big nonprofit after having a career in business. So our, our worlds intersected that way. And, but that wasn't the plan, was it? I mean, you studied, I think, international relations. Is that right? It was not the plan. Thank you for noticing that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I did study international relations, but really what I majored in was the Brown Daily Herald, where I had my <laughs> real love of being a newspaper writer and editor and just thought that was the most marvelous thing. But I graduated at a time when, you know, uh, there was a recession and I did not expect that I was going to get to land a job in journalism. And as a matter of fact, I didn't, I came to Washington and worked for a public relations firm for a couple months and was lucky enough that the Chronicle of Higher Education was hiring um, at some point um, early on in my time. And so I said, okay, I'm going to go do that. I'm going to get to do what I really wanted to do, which was be a reporter based in Washington, D.C. Yeah, well, that's that's amazing that it, it transpired that quickly. Although I was very lucky. But, that, but Brown is a great training ground for journalists, too. So it, at, at the at the paper there, do you remember? Do you remember one of the first stories you published? I don't know if I remember the first, but what was key for me was I covered a scandal uh, in which Brown was caught up in a financial aid scandal, and the Department of Education ended up uh -huh. prosecuting. It was a really for the institution. It was a really big deal, and it was wow. very meaningful. And it in 
it was just all engrossing, as you can imagine, to cover that kind of thing um, and very controversial. So, you know, it, that gave me my first taste of what it's like to do investigative reporting. When you're on a campus, you're interacting with the people you're covering. You can't hide from them. And so if the campus officials are upset with you, you encounter them on the college green, you know, and it's very, it's a very good lesson for journalists because sometimes we're removed from the people we cover. And so we're not thinking about, well, how does it feel that we just published that story this morning? Right. And you would hear it directly from the people who loved it and the people who hated it. Did you get much pushback? Yeah, oh, yes. Yes, I, uh, dean of the college, but threatened to expel me. Yes. For coverage. For the coverage. Well, she accused me of, taking documents from her office, which of course was not true. Um, but I got some documents that were leaked. And so she decided she wanted to blame me for that. And we had to have a few rounds on making sure that she understood what the press did and how it operated and all of those kinds of things. That takes a lot of confidence, but you were still young, very young. I was young. I think that's why I was able to be as confident. I didn't really know all the consequences. Wow. But did you have much support from the paper? I mean, it's all students, yeah. right? So yeah, it, was it was a student students. editor and everything. Yeah. Um, did they, how did they back you up? How did you figure you could, you could make that journey or did you feel largely alone? No, I had great, I, I had wonderful editors. And one of the things about colleges, I look often when I'm doing hiring to people who have done well at their college newspapers, you can learn a lot mm -hmm. um, from the people who are your editors. And you usually have mentors um, from who have been journalists, uh, you know, alumni who graduated, those kinds of things. And those folks were very helpful um, in making sure that we were doing the right thing. I, I do look back and wonder about the fact that we had no lawyers involved in reading the copy. And that makes me as an editor today, absolutely shudder. I would never have published something that a lawyer had not looked at. Right. Because this is all post Watergate. This, yeah, so there were well, a lot would, of lawyers they, involved yes, in that. Exactly. Exactly. And, that, and Watergate is what made me decide I wanted to be a journalist because that was definitely happening during the pivotal years of my growing up. Uh, right. So I, I knew that that was what I wanted to do, but I just didn't think I was going to have the chance to do it. So international relations was my fallback to say, oh, well, maybe I could become a diplomat. I would have been a terrible diplomat. I would have hated it. But I thought that might be the other career I would take. Wow. Uh, so you... Um, decided to take on journalism, uh, that influence of Watergate, which was the seminal moment for a lot of people who lived through that time, um, was part of that. And that that must have made you uh, not afraid to be ferocious in, in pursuing a story like that. Yeah. Um, that's I mean, not that's... the usual college story. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> um, so it, it, after you made your way through there and were, did you end up as serving as the editor also you you were the no, editor. I wasn't the editor I took a break to come to Washington where I really knew I wanted to cover things and so I took my junior semester in Washington working at the Washington Monthly which is a fabulous little magazine mm -hmm. that really believes in explanatory journalism trying to understand how Washington works is what Charlie Peters who was the founder of it you know very much believes in and some fabulous journalists have come through that very small magazine um, and I learned the other day that um, I was visiting with Jamie Marisol the head of the Lumina Foundation, and that he worked there as well. Um, mm. So it's funny that throughout my 
career in philanthropy, I keep running into pieces of my past in that kind of way. But it's just an excellent way to understand, you know, how government agencies do what they're supposed to do, how they don't do it, what makes them tick. It's not about the, you know, sort of covering the horse race of politics, which I think, you know, so much political coverage is now, but it's really looking at, is government doing what it said it was going to do? And that's something that at the Chronicle, we do take that same approach in philanthropy. There was this big commitment to go fight cancer or do this or do that. And did it work? Did it make a difference? And my interest in driving those stories really comes from those days when I worked at the Washington Monthly and learned how important it was to do that for government coverage. So interesting because the um, the journalistic marketplace, uh, the marketplace for journalism in general, has changed a little bit, hasn't it, since that time? Rather dramatically, it it stuns me actually, and I it thrills me. I'm in the market right now for some early career reporters, and how you know that people want to go into this field still it's a marvelous marvelous field but the economics of it are so tricky that you know i worried maybe the best talent wouldn't want to go into this field anymore but there are some absolutely marvelous people um and they're they're very encouraged and they're helping us all reinvent journalism in so many kinds of ways especially you know all these nonprofit news outlets that are getting started that really think about serving their community i think in a way that's a bit different than the for-profit owned big newspapers the uh, yes, the larger papers, the larger media outlets um, seem to be very focused on the horse race, for lack of a better term, the one you just mentioned, and not just in politics, but in many things. The the old "if it bleeds, it leads" you know cliche yeah. seems to be uh, emblematic of of coverage of almost anything. Yeah. And, and to be fair, if if that's an accurate perception, um, why do you think that's so? You know, I think. There was an old part of journalism that thought that that is what readers wanted and thought that that was the good thing to do. There's really been a lot of rethinking now as to what, because unfortunately people aren't reading their news. You know, there's the financial crisis in local journalism, but there's also the fact that people are turned off by what journalism is doing now. And so I think there's a great reexamination in the journalistic world of are we covering these things the right way? And are we damaging democracy and society by not covering things better? And so, you know, I'm encouraged by all the people I see rethinking that. Has it changed everything? No. And when you have cable news, you know, needing the very quick sound bites and the very quick way of doing things, social media as well, sometimes that just encourages, you know, that oversimplification that ends up leading to problems. But, you know, there there definitely are people trying to fight that. So let, let's hope we're on the upswing of finding new ways to do coverage. Right. Well, in fact, that the reason I asked about that is because the way you described the Washington Monthly being explanatory journalism, which is not a term I hear mm -hmm. right. at all. I mean, rarely investigative journalism, not that it's yeah. not happening, but it, yeah. I don't hear it talked about no. in the general population at all. And that's a very different way of thinking about the way people want to uh, take in information and right. be part of a discussion. Um, and I know we'll get there with the Chronicle of Philanthropy specifically, but before we do, when, when you then went uh, out into the into the workforce and you're there and you uh, landed this job as a reporter, um, what besides the, the thrill of getting to start doing what you wanted to do, um, what was that with the reality of that like, especially covering something that's somewhat niche 
in higher education. What was that experience like? Yeah, yeah. When I came to the Chronicle of Higher Education, I was hired as part of a big expansion that they were having to cover the personal and professional lives of faculty and administrators and you know really do something that was more shall we say lifestyle-ish than the typical way in which a trade publication would cover the field and so one of the assignments i got to have was whenever there was an academic meeting being held in a city Houston, San Francisco, wherever it was that academics would meet, I would get to go there a few months before and say, here are all the fun things that you ought to do in your free time in the city. <laughs> Try to hook it to an academic sure. bent. And, you know, and I would interview faculty members who lived in those cities to say, you know, what are the unseen things and the things that nobody else knows about your city that we should go to? And of course, I had to go and sample and do all of these things in my real life. So that was a tremendously fun job. And we were also writing about very serious issues. We were writing about things like sexual harassment, because um, mm. that personal and professional was to say, what are the things that aren't related to academic teaching and sort of the profession that way? What are the things that actually go on in the classroom that people have to deal with? And certainly, you know, one of the things, and this was, you know, nearly 40 years ago and you know people were just beginning to talk about the challenges that women had in academe um, beginning to wage the lawsuits that led to some of the title nine decisions and work um, and you know so we wrote a lot about that so there was this mix of this really kind of fun stuff to do and then the very serious make sure that we're calling attention to key issues we talked about the challenges often that faculty members of color had um, and and, you know, some of those things you still hear today, you know, when I listen to some of the reporting um, at, that my colleagues at the Chronicle of Higher Education still do, there are so many things that have not changed from the interviews I was conducting then. And that, that part horrifies me. But so there was this range of wonderful issues I was doing. But then there became an opening on the Washington desk. And I said, oh, that honestly is really why I came here and what I really wanted to do. So I want to go cover Congress. Um, and the higher education. Education Act was being extended at that point. And so, you know, that was writing a lot about student aid and all of the mm -hmm. other issues that go on in that. And, you know, I don't know if you know the book, The Dance of Legislation, um, that really covered like how a bill becomes a law, but through the eyes of one particular measure. And so, and it's this wonderful background scene explaining, you know, what goes on with the aids and all, mm -hmm. you know, the lobbyists and those kinds of things. So I tried to gear my coverage with that more of that behind the scenes stuff. And I had a chance to really have that play out when Congress was rewriting the tax laws back in 86. And higher education was not a big focus of obviously what was going on. It was a massive tax bill that transformed, you know, how everything was affected. It was really one of the most dramatic bills ever, but it helped me, this is how I got to philanthropy because it helped me understand how the charitable deduction worked and why it mattered and what was gonna happen when the tax law changed. And I also learned all the other tax breaks that colleges and universities cared about, especially I would follow around the Harvard lobbyist who was worried about how Harvard's tax exempt bonds were gonna be treated by this law. <laughs> and all of those other things that you don't think about that are an important part of tax policy. Um, so that was really a marvelous experience to be able to you know, sort of have 
a job where I wasn't following what the rest of the pack, you know, everybody would write those stories that said, Congress today did this to the tax bill. Mm -hmm. And I was writing a story that would say, here's how colleges and universities are going to be affected in these ways that nobody's talking about. And here's how the colleges are lobbying and what their advocates are saying um, and all of that kind of thing. So it was really extraordinary fun to be part of something that was a very big deal, but not just writing what everybody else was writing. It's, it's that's uh, so fascinating on so many levels. But one of them is you mentioned that that was the era of uh, discussions, especially about Title IX, for example, and also yeah. sexual harassment, where yeah. that discussion really ensued in a big way um, and or, or was finally given some oxygen to be part of public discourse. And uh, but you were also a woman <laughs> working in journalism, <laughs> yeah. working first, it sounds like a lifestyle reporter, which, as you say, must have been a, a blast, a lot of fun. But but also it's not it, the kind of uh, potentially adversarial uh, relationship one might imagine could occur when you're asking people tough questions about tax law and whether or not something supports a university or things like that. So I, how was that transition for you? I mean, how was that to be? in the middle of that. And how easy was it, especially because a lot of women at that point, the impression I had from that time was that they were often pigeonholed and put into these roles of the lifestyle reporters and you weren't. Yeah. Well, I think I was, I benefited from the fact that more women were getting serious coverage assignments and working at a trade publication where we had an editor who cared deeply about making sure that women had terrific assignments. And I was very lucky for that, but I don't take that for granted at all. You, you were making a really important point. When I came to the Chronicle, one of the things that my boss was very excited about was to make sure that my name, he always asked me, could I please put my middle initial or my middle name? Because there could be Mr. Stacy Palmer. And he wanted to be, he was so proud that he had a woman covering those things because it was rare mm -hmm. um, and it was important to him and he wanted to demonstrate that. So I was lucky enough that there were other women mentors and I would follow them around, you know, um, certainly the founding mothers of NPR were covering some of that stuff, Linda Wertheimer mm -hmm. um, and those kinds of folks were there and I would watch, I, you know, on Capitol Hill, I would just sort of follow what they were doing and, you know, learn from them. So it helped that there were other people who really, you know, had done that first. But I also think, you know, the coverage of issues like Title IX, of harassment, of the problem women had in tenure, that came because it was women who were doing the, at the Chronicle of Higher Education, the editors and the reporters, we were all women pushing for that kind of coverage. And we said, this is really important. This is what we want to do. So I think we made a difference in changing the emphasis probably of what got the most attention. You know, we didn't have to fight hard for it. It was very easy for our editors to say, yes, those are great stories. But we definitely brought a lens that maybe the male reporters would not have. Well, and then you're on Capitol Hill, presumably talking to, I, I don't know what the demographics were at the time <laughs> for the staff, yeah. but uh, the, uh, the um, composition of the elected officials then and now still is is predominantly male. Yeah, yeah. Um, so how were you received when you were asking kind of interest? You were, of course, gathering information, but you were also, I'm sure, asking good, tough questions. Yeah, I never had a problem with that. And I, you know, I think there were enough women who were in those roles that, and in part, the kinds of questions and the things that we were talking about didn't cause those problems. And I'm not, you know, I, 
obviously have heard plenty of stories of women who were not treated well by mm. members of Congress um, and, you know, referred to as girl and, you know, that mm. kind of thing. But I, I didn't, I was lucky enough not to have any of that. Right. So you were, uh, it sounds like digging into a lot of stories that also may not have been receiving at first anyway, general coverage. And I, yes. I, the reason I'm asking about that is you know, for those who haven't lived at that time or don't remember it or, um, or have forgotten, it, that may be similar to today when certain issues that you take on and your staff takes on um, may not see receive general kind of uh, visibility in the mm -hmm. popular, the mainstream press, whatever we right. want to call that. Um, that seems to be a theme as well. So you were taking on some issues that were really fundamentally important to all Americans. Um, but uh, but when you were then getting that information out, it sounds like you had a very supportive editor. Um, but was there any kind of, uh, what kind of reception did you see the public having to the kinds of issues that you were unearthing? I would say at that point, you know, the Chronicle was, higher education was mostly being read by people on the campuses. So there wasn't necessarily a whole lot of public response mm -hmm. to it, but response from people on on who, you know, in the president's offices at the big higher education lobbying groups, those kinds of things. And there were times when they hated it. They did not love that it was very obvious what they were doing to advocate, you know, and especially, mm -hmm. be and I think this is true for some nonprofits that tend, you know, lobbying for their own interests is a tricky thing. They want to obviously lobby for their constituents, but on something like a tax bill, you're lobbying in part for your wealthy donors and to preserve things that allow your investment returns to be treated a certain way. And so some of those things do not necessarily when you simplify them, they don't always sound good to the rest of the public. So the idea that I was talking about what they were doing, they did not always love. And then other times they loved it because, you know, if there was a threat to something like the charitable deduction, for example, the only way to get the word out was for the press really to start talking about that. How would people know, oh my God, there's a threat. We need to worry about this. Um, and so, you know, Remember back then there was not social media, um, and there was there, there was no internet. The internet in those days had not it would, did not exist. So it was the printed newspaper that people received that helped them understand what was going on. Um, and you know certainly there were associations like independent sectors that they were just beginning to have mm -hmm. strong influences, but they were only just beginning. They didn't have this big following of people. So the news organizations like ours were instrumental in helping informing people, connecting them, that there is this stuff happening on Capitol Hill that truly matters. And I think that even if people didn't love, you know, story X or story Y, the overall fact that we were getting attention to things that people wouldn't know about, I think that overrode any feelings of whether, you know, they loved or hated a particular piece. Right. I, I, I'm kind of wondering if uh, there was any awareness of what you'd done at Brown as a student and then what you were doing. <laughs> and then somebody said, watch out because she's coming. Um, I certainly but, hope not. <laughs> <laughs> well, it didn't seem to stop you. Um, and, and as you were saying, then you moved on to the Chronicle Philanthropy. So what? how did you make that choice? And, and for those who don't know about the connection between the two, that might be helpful to hear about. But then how did you make that choice? Because that was you might have seen that as broadening or more narrowing. I'm not sure in terms of the coverage or the issues that you'd be able to address. Yeah, 
great question. So the Chronicle of Higher Education had left its own nonprofit status not long. Um, there was not a there were probably three years before I joined them. I didn't really know that they had been a nonprofit, but they had become a for-profit. And they had always been thinking about covering nonprofits in a better way, especially because the field was beginning to coalesce and independent sector in particular and other organizations. A lot of people who were very influential in the nonprofit world started their careers at colleges. So they knew the Chronicle of Higher Education. And they said, we don't have a professional publication that brings us together in any kind of way. Would the Chronicle consider creating a publication that focuses on nonprofits mm -hmm. and bring people together just the way the campuses have been brought together by the Chronicle of Higher Education. And that idea always stuck in the head of our founding editor. He loved that idea. Right when they suggested it, the Chronicle was not in a position to be able to do it, but it was always lurking there. So six or seven years later, um, that idea started to become a possibility that you know we were on a fine, Chronicle Inc. was on a better financial footing and said, let's start thinking about another publication. And that idea for the Chronicle of Philanthropy popped up as one of the things. There were many things we considered. We considered, you know, other kinds of publications, but I think where all of our hearts were, were in the idea of a news organization that would be dedicated to covering nonprofits and foundations, that the coverage there was lacking. We had a philanthropy section in the Chronicle of Higher Education, and we would find that we often had these tremendously wonderful stories that had nothing to do with higher education, so we could not cover them. Um, and we thought, this is really, really kind of frustrating. We need to be able to cover them. At the same time, we're also seeing a transformation in the nonprofit world itself more and more organizations, museums, hospitals, those kinds of big institutions, they were starting to expand their fundraising departments. Those had been very informal up until, you know, about 40 years ago. And so where did they go to look for the best fundraisers? Higher education, which had been much more advanced in terms of fundraising. And so all of a sudden the Chronicle of Higher Education was seeing all these job ads for people outside of academe to take fundraising jobs. And we started to say, there's mm -hmm. something happening here that also gives us another opening that this field is changing and it probably could support a professional publication like ours. So we did some research and looked at whether it would be viable. And it turns out it was. And when I heard about this idea, I thought, that was just the coolest thing to be able to be part of a startup. The editor who was running it was one of my favorite people to work with. So I knew he'd be a great mentor. And you asked the question about, is it broadening or narrowing? To me, it was broadening because to writing about colleges is wonderful. I love higher education. It's fascinating. But writing about every kind of nonprofit you learn a little bit about everything every single day. So colleges are a subset of who we cover, but you know we get to cover all kinds of things. So I saw it as a broadening for sure. That um, that idea that it's philanthropy, it's not the chronicle of fundraising. It, there is that. Um, people call us the fundraising Bible, especially early in our, I would say early-ish um, in our development, people would, if you know i was being introduced at you know to give a speech or something people would say you know and the chronicle is the fundraising bible and 
you know, it, that way to be a Bible of anything was great. You know, that clearly they, people were saying they relied on it. They cared about it, that they needed professional guidance. But we didn't set out with the idea that fundraising was the key thing we were going to do. We knew we were going to be talking a lot about money for sure. But, mm-hmm. you know, our goal, and it still is this, is to bring people who work at foundations, big donors, and nonprofits together to talk about what are the key issues and what's going on. And so it's the reason we were able to be a fundraising Bible is that we were talking to the foundations to say, here's what the priorities are. So fundraiser, you can find out what Ford and Rockefeller um, and later when the Gates Foundation was created, here's what they're thinking about. Now, uh, to use another cliche, you can, uh, you know, lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. So if that was the goal to bring these parties together, and you obviously the Chronicle has worked very hard on that for many years now. Do you think that's been successful? Have the different parts of the philanthropy, the third sector, um, have they come together? Yeah, that is a work in progress for sure, I I would say. And so there are times when I feel like we've made great progress on that. And then there are other times that the world, nonprofits in general can be so isolated from each other and then grant makers can be. I think the pandemic changed that back again. And I feel like our pages were a place for more dialogue about what it is, how philanthropy needs to change. Um, And, you know, I I don't know how many times we've written about trust-based philanthropy, but everybody has been discussing the need for grant makers to listen a whole lot more um, to what their grantees need. And certainly, you know, the racial justice movement has also added to that concern. So I, I feel that we've had a chance to influence that a bit more. So there is a bit more coming together. Uh, but there are times where it, it's a challenge. So I, we have more work to do. Everybody, it, we have not solved this problem. If there's, uh, if you hear a criticism, I'm not sure you do, but of um, the general coverage, in other words, more of this, less of that kind of criticism. Uh, is it that uh, people might say you're not covering enough of something that's already here versus something that's coming, or uh, or is it the reverse? Uh, it, because I, and the reason I ask that is you just mentioned several things that are so important, and one is uh, the the racial justice movement, which you have covered. And in fact, even behind you, you have the power of women, and you have a cover with with Tysley right there featured, who's been uh, in this podcast is a wonderful uh, leader in this sector. But there have been lots of articles in the Chronicle about various issues of our time and beyond. Do people see the coverage as timely, premature, or late? All of those things. <laughs> you know, w- one of the things I we had a conference on diversity in the nonprofit world in 2017. Mm-hmm. And as I was preparing for that, I decided to go back to our first issues because I was interviewing somebody who I knew had been a key source in talking about racial issues in philanthropy. And I went back and it was in our first, our very first year in 1988 that we wrote about the coming problem that philanthropy has because it's too white. And it hasn't grappled with the fact that demographics are changing and number of the sources that we talked to were really sending a warning to philanthropy and saying we need to be paying more attention to this we absolutely are not as a field and we need to do better and you know you think about that it just so happened that we started publishing then if we had been publishing 10 years earlier people would probably have been saying the same things and feeling like it so sometimes when you know 
the debates of the past two years, you know, broke out, I feel like saying this has been going on for a long, long time. It's not just a 2020 thing. Um, people have known that philanthropy needs to diversify in many ways. So, you know, I can say, yes, we covered it then. Did we cover it enough? And did were we a force in change? Probably not enough. We're not in, nobody can do enough. Um, so it, it, it is important to go back and look at your coverage sometimes and say, did did you get it right? Um, and certainly, you know, at the change of the decades, certainly at you know when the 2000s opened and again in 2010 and again in 2020, we've gone back and looked at what we got right and done a little report card for ourselves about you know what changed um, and what kinds of things did we get right or did we give enough attention to and what things did we not. Um, and you know most of the time I think we found that six out of the ten big trends that we identified were things that we were right about. And then you know there were others that absolutely did not command the attention that you know, we expected them to. And by we, I mean, the experts we interviewed, we ourselves are not experts. So we talk to a lot of people when we identify trends. That's, it's fascinating, the idea of a report card, especially uh, going back to the people that perhaps you had spoken with over the years and, and then uh, revisiting some of those discussions. Um, I don't know how much there isn't of an audience for that kind of story, but yeah, it's, it's a little it's but, but But we use it to look at you know, what did the field right. think what was going to happen? You know, because as I said, you know, we're saying, you know, what were people predicting and forecasting, you know, a, a while ago? And I would say, you know, things like the rise of the number of billionaires who don't have formal foundations, but mm -hmm. have these LLCs, you know, where the foundation is under it, but there's a lot of, you know, private stuff that happens so that you can't, there's less disclosure, there's less availability for all of us to peer in and understand what's going on in philanthropy. That was something we predicted really early on because we could see the signs that some of the leading people in philanthropy were going in that direction and that, they were still creating foundations, but they were doing it in a very different way. There's another thing that's happened over the years that's uh, many things have happened, but one of them is the decline of, of giving as a percentage of the population who gives. And there was some signs that maybe there was a reversal, a little bit of that trend uh, in the middle of this pandemic, which we are still experiencing. Um, but uh, nevertheless, uh, whether it's perceived as a Bible of fundraising, philanthropy, or everything else, there are probably a lot of things people associate because our identity is tied often to the coverage that you provide, that um, there may be, one of the questions might be how, if or how, uh, the media uh, and others can be a force for encouraging more people to re-enter this kind of philanthropic landscape, if in fact that's something that we need to do. There are, there are people who say, no, the government needs to do more. It's not about philanthropy. But for those who believe in philanthropy, um, is the media doing what it needs to do in order to encourage more of it? Yeah. I, no matter what you think about government's role and business's role, I think everyone thinks that the fact that the share of Americans who give to charity is going down is not a good thing for our democracy. We want more people engaged and we don't want just Mackenzie Scott, wonderful as her giving is, you know, should not be dominating everything. We want people at mm -hmm. all income levels to be giving to the causes that they care about. And, you know, and in some ways voting for the fact that those things are important and to solve the problems in their communities that billionaires are never going to get to that local level. Everybody needs to be giving. So, you know, I do think that that is a giant 
warning sign and problem for the nonprofit world in many ways. And we've been writing about that for a long time too. One of the reasons that we formed a partnership with the Associated Press was this specific reason. Um, and they're covering philanthropy and we're covering philanthropy. So there are, thanks to Lily Endowment Support, there are five reporters now who are covering philanthropy who never had been covering philanthropy before, who have been added to the scene. Our stories appear on the Associated Press feed and their stories appear with us. Um, and our goal is to educate the public much more about what nonprofits are doing. And we do live briefings as well to, you know, when the Ukraine war broke out, we did something on how to give, how to give smartly and to really think about the long term because we know in disaster giving that so much of it focuses on that. I'm gonna give now and I see these horrible scenes of people suffering and that's wonderful that people give, but most of these disasters have really long-term impact. And we wanted to quickly say, think about this as a long-term crisis and to educate donors about that. So those are the kinds of things that we're doing. We strongly believe that if there is more coverage of what's going on in communities of nonprofits solving problems, and they are solving massive problems, people will think about giving. Right now, they just, so much of the coverage People feel hopeless, you know, that there are all these big problems. And they don't see who's making a difference. If you cover nonprofits, you'll find who's making a difference. Um, and sometimes you'll find who's not making a difference. And that's an investigative story. That's a different kind of thing. But for the most part, if coverage was stronger because with that spotlight on nonprofits, I think that giving would go up. Um, and another effort that we have related to this is we have local journalists that we're training for an entire year to cover the nonprofit world. And our hope is that they will say, this is a really valuable thing. We hope their audience will decide that it is a valuable thing and that they will continue that coverage when the fellowship ends. We just started, I don't know the results yet, but you know, our goal is to make sure that there is strong local coverage. That's what's gonna get people giving again. That's, uh, it's interesting you said uh, nonprofit world. The, you've also given space often over the years to coverage of philanthropy beyond the U.S. borders. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm curious to know two things, kind of bringing those questions together. One is that it does seem like the media, general media has provided more coverage, at least of major days throughout the year related to philanthropy, mm -hmm. year-end giving, mm -hmm. Um, the coverage and sometimes people bring you on to talk about this on, on the radio, for example, or in television to talk about um, in the, the major giving days, mm -hmm. et cetera. Uh, so I'm wondering if you see a tide shifting with the media and not just in our, our own uh, landscape here in the United States, but globally where philanthropy has grown dramatically over the last three and a half decades. I, I will consider it a major victory when there's coverage of philanthropy that is not tied to year-end giving. I want people to cover <laughs> it in March. Um, so that is, that is the goal of all of these efforts is to make sure that people recognize that nonprofits do work all year round and, and need donations and need to get engaged. But mm -hmm. absolutely, I mean, the 
global giving is just phenomenal to see what's happening in different places. And certainly the interest of Americans in giving overseas is also exploding because there are so many more opportunities to be connected to causes that matter in different ways. And, you know, so I think we're just going to see more and more attention being given to you know, philanthropy worldwide. Um, there are wonderful publications like Alliance magazine, you know, based in London that covers philanthropy. Um, there are some of their editorial team came to visit us a couple of weeks ago to learn how we do what we're doing and to, you know, think about partnerships that way um, and, you know, sort of bring together philanthropy editors. We did a briefing a couple months ago where the editors of many of the major publications, you know, we all talked about the coverage of philanthropy. So I think those are great signs that, you know, there's going to be more attention. There still needs the, I don't think there are enough journalistic resources right now paying attention to the things that are going on worldwide. It's hard enough to get a handle on the United States. I know we feel that way. We would love to have global coverage, but we don't have the resources right now to do that. Well, maybe that's a good place to turn into where you are today with, um, excuse me one second, um, where you are with uh, the um, transition within the Chronicle Philanthropy. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what's happening and why that's happening and how it might influence these things you were just talking about, the ability to cover more things and get the word out to more places? Yeah, so we're very excited. We announced um, in the spring that we have a plan to double our size and hopefully double our impact over the next five years. And to do that, we're becoming an independent organization spinning off from the Chronicle of Higher Education and ourselves becoming a nonprofit. And those were two separate decisions, this desire to become independent and then to choose nonprofit status as the way we're going to structure ourselves. And the more we thought about it and the more we realized that being in sync with what our readers are doing and needing all the time, that that was a very important thing for us to do. We've also seen just tremendous growth of nonprofit news outlets. And I talked a little bit earlier in the podcast about how they're redefining coverage. They are much closer to their communities. They don't do that sort of standoffish thing that big city newspapers thought was really important is that you're never supposed to have a point of view and you're not supposed to be involved in anything. Well, we all live in these communities and we all do things that get engaged. So, you know, some nonprofit news outlets, for example, at the beginning of the pandemic, they were, you know, helping people get connected with how to get vaccines, how to get PPE, how to help people in need. You know, they didn't just write stories. They said, here are lists of things you can do. Come to our offices and we'll help you figure these things out. They just redefined, you know, what a news organization looks like. And I think that's the direction that more and more journalistic organizations are going to find success in. It's going to attract younger people, I hope, to caring about journalism. So we wanted to be part of that. Um, that seemed like where all the action was and that it would allow us to better serve this world. So that's why we decided to do that. We're still waiting for our IRS ruling. So when that comes, we will become a nonprofit. We are not officially one yet, um, but we are beginning that process of moving that way. And the two things that we care about doing with this transition is 
doing a better job of serving nonprofit and foundation professionals. We've been limited in what we can do just by the size of our staff. So we know there are things that we need to do better. And we keep asking people all the time, what can we do better? And we hear tons of answers of things we would love to do. So that's part one. We're not going to you know, ever swerve away from our commitment to serving the professionals in the field. But the second thing is to really build on what I talked about um, with educating the public and working with other news outlets. The Associated Press Partnership we have is fabulous, but there are tons of other news organizations that also need the kind of attention and mentorship that we can provide by saying, nonprofits are an important area to cover. Um, and here's how to do it in a sophisticated way. Uh, one of the things I encounter all the time when I talk to people at nonprofits and foundations is actually how frustrated they are when the media does start covering philanthropy is how badly they do it in some cases. Um, and and so, you know, they don't always want more coverage because they don't want coverage that is just not sophisticated and that doesn't understand how nonprofits work. So, you know, we see our role in not just saying this is an important area, but saying this is how it works and this is how it doesn't work. And here are the ways to think smartly about covering nonprofits. Coming full circle like that's very, very interesting it, that if you started at the, the Chronicle of Higher Ed as a not-for-profit moving into a for-profit and then moving from for-profit to not-for-profit, you've also had all those years of seeing what works and what doesn't in terms of the revenue associated with that. So clearly, you all have discussed that and decided this business model allows you to double the size, which is, which is really, really wonderful. Um, at the same time, it uh, broaches one other question, which many people are talking about in the sector. And that's just as uh, the commercial outlets are at the uh, are have to be responsive to advertisers. <laughs> um, so let's use uh, outside source as an example, whether it's Fox or CNN or whatever, they, they're going to either have all those pharma ads or ads from whomever. Um, in order to drive things, and it may or may not influence what they say or write about, but but it is they do need to have that revenue in order to operate. In the same way, nonprofits need uh, donors, um, it, and some argue in the sector that donors have too much influence, increasing influence. And I, I'm I'm not trying to take a position, but rather just ask how when as you thought about this transition, how did you consider that? Because clearly, in order to double in size, you'll need a lot of generous individuals and institutions behind that. They will, I'm sure, want you to think well of them. It may or may not in any way influence what you do, but that I'm sure will be a perception among some. How, how did you reconcile those ideas? It's a really important question. And one of the things, and it was the biggest thing that we wrestled with, we did start accepting foundation grants four or five years ago, just to test, nothing big, just to say, it was very helpful to us, but, you know, nothing in the kind of size that anybody would, you know, raise any concerns about. But we spent more than a year before we even accepted our first foundation grant dollar, developing a gift acceptance policy, getting the reporters to make sure they understood that they were never to be influenced by our supporters. And that if for some reason they ever were, you know, what kind of reporting mechanisms they should make sure that they did and how we would decide, you know, what kind of dollars we would take and who we would take it from all those basic questions that every nonprofit has. But for us, that was a 
even deeper question because of what we cover and what we do. And so we took that very seriously. We were very lucky that the foundations that we chose to work with and that chose to support us have never once um, in any way tried to influence our coverage. As a matter of fact, they you know really stay very far away from it. And, and when we were deciding to do the nonprofit, you know, I every foundation that I called on. I would say within the first two or three minutes of our conversation, we ended up talking about this issue because either they were concerned about it or they wanted to see that we had thought about it very well. It was very much top of mind for foundation leaders. And it's important to them for their reputation. They don't want to be seen as meddling in the Chronicle's coverage. Um, so the money that we're raising from foundations is to allow us to generate more earned revenue. Basically, we're going to double down on that. So while foundation support is hugely, hugely important, what's really important is that we do better in making sure that we have advertising, we get fees, you know, in the ways that other people earn them. So that traditional base that every nonprofit has, we need many, many inputs so that way nobody influences us in many ways. And I would say that's always been what's been most important to us. Yes, uh, you know, we've always had some big advertisers, but honestly, if I did something that just horrified everybody from the Red Cross to Harvard, people would stop subscribing and they wouldn't believe in us and they wouldn't want to have our organization do all the things we do. They wouldn't go to our webinars. They wouldn't, you know, advertise their jobs with us. All of the ways that we make money, our integrity is what matters. And, you know, that's who we answer to is really the readers, subscribers, the audience. Um, they're far more important, I think, than any particular foundation. And for anybody who reads the Chronicle, they they know also that you've been kind of tough on a couple of those institutions you just mentioned, <laughs> yeah. and people have not stopped subscribing. In fact, I, I, I'll bet that uh, you have people on those staffs who are subscribing. Um, it, you, you talked a, a little bit earlier about the kind of hopelessness sometimes people feel, mm -hmm. um, but you're still obviously very juiced up. And I don't know that it's just this change of financial model or the idea of expanding. You seem as energetic now as when I first talked to you a long time ago um, in terms of these ideas and what you want to do. What what keeps you hopeful? Um, that's a great question, I think, especially after these past couple of years that we have all been through. But, you know, the nonprofits that we cover every single day, that's what gives us all this amazing inspiration. Sometimes we see people who have been through tremendous challenges, who founded organizations for whatever reason, being creative, innovative, doing incredible things. And we joke occasionally that like, all we did was write the story about them. You know, they did this, you know, we were, we were inspired by this incredible thing that they did. And we got a great photograph and a great headline and we did that, but, and I'm glad to call attention to it, but really we were sitting in our offices or now in our home offices much more often um, covering the things that these people do. And it is such an inspiring area to cover. And especially now that we think that we can get more public attention to the nonprofit world at this time when, we depend on nonprofits and they are not resourced to do the things we all need them to do. I'm quite worried about what's coming between inflation, the great resignation, the lack of government aid as more pandemic aid dries up. You know, nonprofits were so resilient. They did an amazing job during this pandemic, but now they're facing the real challenges. Remember there were all those 
people say, oh, you know, hundreds of thousands of nonprofits are going to close within the first six months of the pandemic. That didn't happen. But now, at, you know, I don't think it will be in those numbers. Now, many groups are really struggling um, as demand for their services is increasing and their staffing, you know, is greatly challenged. So, you know, we need to find ways to make sure that the public understands that if these nonprofits disappear, the people who are counting on them would be in trouble. The advocacy work that they do when we have something like climate change to worry about um, and all so many other issues, those are the things that inspire us to do our work is that those people need representation and they need their stories to get out there. And so, you know, you'd feel a little guilty if you didn't do your best to make sure that they got the spotlight and the attention that they deserve. The Philanthropy Masterminds podcast is underwritten by DonorSearch, the world leader in donor intelligence solutions. Our producer is Jack Frost. Our theme music is Be My Remedy, composed and performed by House of Say. You can subscribe to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find blogs, webcasts, and CFRE accredited webinars with our featured masterminds at donorsearch.net or check the show notes and descriptions.